Next up, we have a panel discussion with Q&A moderated by Sverre Strandhagen, who is a commentator at Dagens Næringsliv, Norway's financial newspaper. Sverre writes mostly about foreign affairs and especially about security issues, defense pol uh, politics and great power politics. For 14 years, he has uh, been head of the political department for the paper. He is educated as a political scientist from the University of Oslo. Welcome, Svara Stranhagen. Now we're going to follow up with some questions. And um, I'll try to highlight some important points in your presentations. Um, my first keyword is strategy. Um, of course, these three regional players, um, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, Iran, they have um, followed a kind of different strategy. And um, it may be interesting to try to compare them a little bit. First, first if you can start with, with Saudi Arabia. Um, you mentioned, Jernula, that uh, it was the Arab Spring was a kind of earthquake. It was something that the regime hated. And, and you described uh, two phases. First, one was which the regime tried to counter revolution, um, to counter the Arab Spring. And then uh, they tried to modernize their own regime because they realized that they had to do something in order to keep control. Um, in that sense, it was a kind of, the Arab Spring had a kind of positive impact. Um, still, uh, you mentioned it maybe a kind of a risky change. Could you explain a little bit about that? Uh, I can try. Uh, first of all, I'd say, yeah, a positive impact in the sense that there is there are some aspects of this modernization project that are positive, obviously uh, a simple thing that women can drive cars, but also the, the, the re relaxation of some of the cultural restrictions and more specifically the restrictions on on women, so there are positive aspects, but there are also very negative aspects because the, the freedom of discussion of organizing anything is less than uh, than ever, and that says says a lot in, in in Saudi Arabia. But when I say the the the, the risky part of the strategy is it, it's twofold. One, as I tried to explain, is the external one is that when you project military power directly, you become much more vulnerable to to resistance and you you lose uh, a lot in, in in reputation that's one thing but also saudi arabia's uh, strength uh, internally except for money but uh, are not necessarily that uh, that that um, how do you say sustainable uh, so that's one thing in, in internally i i i mean that there are um we have a lot of example in history of uh, modern autocratic uh, rulers deciding that it's time for that they have to move for change. Like the Shah in Iran is the most immediate comes to mind because we're talking about this region, uh, and and whether in the well, it started in the 30s, but definitely in the 60s and 70s was rapid modernization and rapid changes taking place in Iranian society, which brought forth. Well, we think a lot about the, 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 the mullahs, of course, that's one thing, because it stirred cultural conflicts, 
in in the country with this rapid modernization but it also produced a a, a huge a working class and and a modern middle class which was very important in the in this uh, in toppling the shah when they in the 70s from the mid 70s went into opposition so same kind of things might happen in in saudi arabia there's an emerging big uh, middle class who wants more than watching cinema what wants more than uh well having a reasonable income wants to to uh to influence things and at the same time saudi arabia remains a religious country and um it's not an easy deal to move away from this very strict religious uh, regime that they had had, and it will stir a lot of uh, of conflicts so uh, it is uh, these reforms are destabilizing and to succeed at least they would have to succeed tremendously in the economic terms but it's not clear that they will do so yes thank you if we turn to the Iranian regime then Chetil, uh, as you mentioned they they welcome the Arab Spring um, and uh, but they call it maybe the Islamic awakening um, uh, they try to, to exploit the uprisings uh, and were very active all over the place uh, in Syria, in Lebanon, Libya and Yemen but you made a special case of Syria because they have a very much dilemma and they ended up in, in supporting Assad regime um, would you, if you sum up here, would you say that this is kind of a, a success for the point of view of, of the Tehran regime? In a sense, it is. I mean, it. Who would have thought that the Syrian regime would survive? I mean, it looked really bad from Iran's point of view. Like the, the entire region, the entire world was against it. It was only Iran and, you know, eventually Russia. I think they showed that it mattered more to them than it mattered to... They were they were prefer, prepared to sacrifice more than, than the other side's supporters. Like Saudi Arabia, yes, it was supportive of the Syrian opposition, but it had a lot of hesitation wasn't that sure about these uh, Islamist forces winning the country. We weren't really that convinced. Iran knew what it wanted and it went for it. But, but when I talk in these terms and I say Iran knew what it wanted, I'm, I'm not really doing justice to the heterogeneity of, uh, of views inside Iran. And I should say that compared to Pinar and Bionulab, I have not been as good as laying out the internal uh, tensions and contradictions that underlie this regional policy because Iran has its own um, tensions and the, the regime of, if you call it Khamenei's regime Khamenei has been the leader of Iran since 1989. For as long as he has been the leader of Iran, there has been a constant push for reform inside Iran and push uh, of tuning down these tensions, tuning down these revolutionary movements, uh, stop uh, engaging in these regional battles. Um, 
And Khamenei's survival policy strategy has been to keep these confrontations alive. There's no doubt about that. Uh, he has been thriving on a state of tensions with the outside world because as long as Iran is under attack by the entire uh, world led by the United States, it's very hard to argue for, you know, reform and democracy inside Iran and priority has to be the country's security and so you can strike down on internal opposition. And you have these tensions between, for the past eight years, you have these tensions between the Revolutionary Guards and and uh, the pre presidency of Rouhani, who has been engaging for taking down these conflicts, uh, engagement with the West. This has, been, this has been a real battle inside um, Iran. And of course, the Revolutionary Guards has threatened its internal position because of everything that's going on in the Arab world, uh, Syria included. Uh, and that's why it is worrying that Iran finds its, that Rouhani and his, what he stands for finds itself in this discredited state inside Iran. It is deeply worrying for what may come in the long run. Thank you. And we turn to Turkey. Um, Pinar, um, Mr. Erdogan, he has had great ambitions for, for, for Turkey and, uh, and make, um, like to make Turkey a, a, more, a bigger role for Turkey in, in the region. Um, uh, somebody calls him the new sultan and he talks about the Ottoman Empire. Um, how would you evaluate his foreign policy efforts? In I know terms, it's a big question, but still. In terms of their success? Yeah. Um, well, you know, um, at the moment, Turkey is in this quagmire in Syria. And it is, uh, you know, it's engaged in processes that it sometimes overreaches. But in many ways, if you look at the period in which Erdogan has been in, in power from 2002 uh, to, to the present, and you look at Turkey before 2002, uh, Turkey, it, when Erdogan came to power, was a country that was in economic uh, decline. It was uh, had its hand in its hat and was knocking at the door of the European Union. And much of the reason why Erdogan came to power in 2002 was this dissatisfaction with the way Turkey was also, you know, th th there was no pride in being Turkish. Erdogan has brought pride back to Turkey, which is, uh, you know, it has made Turkey um, a country to deal with both regionally, but also globally. I mean, another aspect of his foreign policy that we haven't really discussed here is this aspiration to become a human humanitarian power, which given what's happening internally in the country is, of course, an enormous contradiction. So on many levels, uh, his foreign policy has succeeded in putting Turkey on the map, but it's had many failures along the way. And yet he's able to pick himself up and turn around. And he is, above all, a pragmatist. So some of these alliances that we see him making and breaking are, are alliances based on this pragmatic need to, to, to promote Turkish power uh, in, in the region and as a rising global actor. If we... Um, continue um, with another keyword, <laughs> uh, United States of America. Um, it, it's a kind of an elephant in the room in a way. Uh, uh, 
as you know, um, the relationship between U.S. and Turkey is very strained, mm -hmm. and because of uh, the friendship between Turkey and, and, and Russia, between Erdogan and, and Putin, mm -hmm. I understand they are quite close friends, uh, in fact. Um, and you have described this um, relationship as transactional. Um, it is not that I find it quite easy to understand what's in it for Putin, but but what's in it for 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 Erdogan and Turkey? Mm, I think uh, Erdogan leverages his relationship to Putin uh, as uh, to gain concessions other places and and also to put Turkey on the map. Turkey is now playing in the big league because it's included in this kind of marriage of convenience or transactional alliance, if you like, uh, with Russia. Uh, and also, you know, Erdogan has benefited, I think, to a certain extent from the um, the policy of the U.S. administration and under Trump, uh, which has... Um, you know he's been able to use it to its to his advantage i think now with the biden administration it'll be harder for him to do that not least because there's more of a connection between the white house and the state department and and policy will be formed you know not on the spur of the moment or through twitter and 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 just in a reactionary way so i think that the new policy coming from the biden administration will be something that erdogan will perhaps have a harder time using his uh, his um, strongman tactics uh, uh, against, uh, not least because the Biden administration has already signaled that you know questions of democracy and governance will be much more important to them uh, than they were to the Trump administration. So I think that um, uh, I, I, uh, what is it in? in What's the relationship to Russia? I think it has been to put Turkey on the map. It has been to be able to leverage that relationship vis-a-vis -vis, uh, others as well. Chetil, <coughs> uh, the, the big question, of course, uh, concerning the U.S. And, and Iran is is the nuclear nuclear deal, uh, and um, uh, and and it's not that easy match. <laughs> Uh, it's quite a delicate matter. Could, could you explain a little bit about that? Yes, it's the, the big question now um, with Iran, because as you know, President Biden made it clear during his campaign that he wanted to um, reintegrate the GCPOA and criticize Trump's withdrawal from it and the maximum pressure campaign. And that raised a lot of expectations in Iran that, you know, uh, when, as soon as he's in power, things will get uh, resolved. Mm. Now, um, uh, we, we're soon two months in his presidency, and we see that things are not that easy. They're not going to be that easy. Um, there's a lot of debate in the U.S., you know, saying that, okay, President Trump built up a lot of leverage for us. You know, his, he, his sanctions campaign was maybe not that... Uh, and justified, but look, we have got all this pressure on Iran. We have to use it. And now we should use it to make a better deal. We should, uh, you know, include what was not in part of the GCPOA in the, the first, um, which is kind of the missile program of Iran and, and its regional activities. And 
Biden and especially some of his advisors' role has been to say that, you know, we should first just go back to GCPOA and then that will be a good measure and we'll build on that. We'll tackle the other questions uh, as they come. Nonetheless, we see that, you know, there's this pressure from the Congress. Um, congressmen have, there was a bipartisan letter saying that, you know, we should, Biden should use this opportunity to, to make a more comprehensive deal, as they say. And so um, Biden is, uh, he's made some goodwill measures, but he's done nothing on sanctions so far, which from the Iranian point of view is outrageous because, you know, from their point of view, the US breaking with the GCPOA was just completely illegitimate. Here was an, an international agreement uh, ratified by the Security Council, and then all of a sudden just, um, President Trump finds out, I don't want to stick to this, and, and I'll go for it. The very contrary, impose harsh sanctions against Iran and, and in the middle of COVID-19. So the Iranians feel completely betrayed by the entire international community. And then they say, okay, we're two months into this um, presidency and still we have all the sanctions. And, and now both sides are saying that, you know, the other, other side should go first because Iran has um, stepped back from part of its commitment to the GCPOA, um, progressively enriching more um, uranium to higher degrees, stockpiling more um, uranium, using more advanced centrifuges. Um, the Iranian parliament has passed legislation that would force the government to uh, reduce access to international um, observers of the nuclear program. So kind of just as the Congress has made it difficult for a president of the US to, to reintegrate the deal, the Iranian parliament in a sense is doing the same thing. Uh, so there's a, there's a worrying situation and right now it seems like, you know, the US is saying, okay, we, we're giving these signals that we want to go back to the Iran to do the agreement, but we would like to see similar signals coming out of Iran. But Iran um, is not currently giving these signals. Iran is now saying that, you know, it has, this has to be a simple matter. The U.S. goes back to its commitment and will will comply completely. We're not going to negotiate now. If we had wanted to negotiate, we would have negotiated with Trump. We reject this idea that there can be a better deal. There's the GCPOA and that's it. You, stay, you take it or you leave it. This is the GCPOA. And the upcoming elections in Iran is complicating matters as well um, because soon this will be... There is a lot of politics in this. And maybe some actors in Iran don't really want to give Rouhani the pressure of of fixing the Iranian economy. Maybe they'd like that to be a hardline president elected in June who comes to get the honor of fixing the economy. Um, then again, the question is, will a hardline uh, president in Iran actually want to to reintegrate into the nuclear agreement at all so it's um it's it's, a, it's really an open question i mean every the two sides agree 
that you know the GCPO is a good thing and that the Trump uh, maximum pressure campaign was uh, illegitimate. But now the the, the devil is in the detail and, uh, and there's a lot of posturing. Yeah, um, very ex um, exciting. Uh, back to Saudi Arabia. Um, they're all friends with the United States, of course. Um, but still, there are quite harsh criticisms these days from the Biden administration. Um, and the bigger question is, of course, that the United States is kind of retreating from the Middle East, from, from Syria, from Afghanistan. And uh, and they're not that de dependent of the oil in, from Saudi Arabia. Virula, uh, what would you say? What what do you expect from the relationship between United Biden administration and, and the Saudi regime now? Uh, I may be wrong, but I don't expect any any sort of rapid major change. There was the U.S. sent a signal when they released this uh, report that pointed. To MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, is responsible for the Khashoggi uh, mm. uh, killing. But, but the, the Americans are gradually retreating, but still Saudi Arabia is important. Mm. And the Middle East is still important uh, for strategic reasons. Uh, Saudi Arabia is still important because uh, an important aspect of the situation is that the, the countries that in the Arab world traditionally were, were the strong powers that sort of balance these rich oil monarchies, states like Egypt uh, more than anything, but also Egypt, Syria, Iraq, they have all sort of uh, more or less collapsed uh, on themselves. I mean, Egypt is controlled by a military regime, but it, it, it is absorbed in its own internal economic and political uh, problems. So it's not, it's an ally for Saudi Arabia, but it's, uh, it's, it's rather a dependency on, on Saudi Arabia. So, meaning that some years to come, probably the, the Saudis and the Emiratis will continue to have a sort of leadership or be in the driving forces or being driving forces uh, in the region. And then the U.S., that's why the U.S. will not go so far. They will have a more critical distance um, than before, but they will keep the, re the relation. In the face just after the uprisings of 2011, the U.S. were testing out... Um, new possible uh, partners or contacts that were had had contact with the Muslim brothers in Egypt, for example, and so on. But nowadays, there are no sort of credible major forces that could be an uh, alternative just for the, uh, for the moment. On the other hand, as I tried to describe, I'm in a little bit longer run. Uh, I think that the, this, uh, the role of Saudi Arabia is on rather weak foundations. I mean, Iran and Turkey will remain, I'm quite sure, as major powers uh, in the region. Saudi Arabia, that's more uh, uh, shaky. And as, uh, uh, and, and also it didn't have success, it, it didn't, what, did not have success in enforcing Qatar into place. Its efforts in Yemen and in Syria, uh, it's not, uh, and in Libya are not uh, going anywhere. There might be a a pushback, and 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 as I said, the, the Arab Spring is is still alive in Algeria. There are ongoing big demonstrations in that major oil oil country. But so sort of any any shift 
in one of the major Arab countries in uh, in uh, renewed uh, for democracy could send things moving also in in the Gulf. So. Thank you. Uh, if we could continue a little bit about uh, an, another aspect here, the, the the internal problems in all these three countries, uh, and we can continue with Saudi Arabia. Um, uh, of course, they they experience some kind of modernization and uh, a little bit of, of t taste of freedom, <laughs> um, and um, but you don't expect things to to boil <laughs> in in the short run, I guess. But but you also mentioned the oil price uh, and and how important the oil price is. If you get a big drop in the oil price. Uh, let's say next five ten years what 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 can you expect in Saudi Arabia? Will it boil more i I think that but still Saudi Arabia has uh, huge financial reserves, but they have been uh dropping quite rapidly in the period from twenty fourteen with with the low oil price. If we get into another period like that uh it, Saudi Arabia, there ha things have happened already. Saudi Arabia has introduced indirect taxes, which have made some goods uh, more uh, more uh, expensive for the population. Saudi Arabia is also not uh, it's not sort of stone rich as as, uh, as Qatar or Abu Dhabi, uh, and there's a high uh, living standard for the population in general. But there are also poor sections even within the Saudi citizen population, and if uh, uh, a reduced oil price to more taxes, uh, um, uh, less jobs uh, for the Saudi population, then uh, uh, then that would, uh, I think, might well trigger uh, un unrest. Because there are, and and then if unrest is triggered, there are forces in place now. There are a lot of them are in jail at the moment. That's true. But there are tendencies, for example, within the wide um, Islamic-leaning or Islamist-leaning circles inside the uh, Saudi middle class, uh, there is already in place uh, ideologues, uh, 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 programmatic uh, or programs calling for constitutional monarchy, for participation. So a uh, combination of this, that the, the, the oppositional forces are there, uh, and then, if the economic situation creates more uh, dissatisfaction, things might move faster than than we think. I don't see it immediately forecoming, but but with it, if there was to be a sustained period of low oil prices, yes. Mm. Uh, well, Iran is is also in, in in a difficult situation, and as you mentioned, there are going to be election in June. Um, uh, what is at stake? Well, um, many things are at stake. Uh, starting, as I said, with the, the nuclear agreement, um, the fact that um, you know, a recent public um, opinion poll in Iran showed that support of the GSPOA had fallen from about 76%, I think, in at the time it was agreed to around 50% now, uh, showing 
strong popular support for the hardline measures voted by the parliament saying that you know we should keep increasing our pressure we should keep, um uh, reducing our commitment to nuclear agreement until the us uh, abides by by its obligations and and as i said um there's a real uh, possibility that you know um that we may not get back to the nuclear agreement and that's um, for sure going to create huge, huge problems because Iran continuing nuclear um, enrichment at the even uh, steadily uh, growing pace is a red line for Israel. Israel is not going to sit and and let that happen in the long run. So that's that's hugely, hugely worrying. Internally in Iran, there's also a lot of stake. I mean, as you know, there's there's been this balance of powers and, and forces uh, inside Iran, which goes back as long as the republic has been there. There's been in, in, internal factions um, advocating for different uh, lines, both internally and externally. And the real threat now is that you may be for the first time <laughs> I think in history of the Islamic Republic can get like a sort of consolidation of all branches of the state in the hands of hardliners because hardliners are currently in control of the parliament. They already control the deep state, everything related to security and uh, armed forces. Now the only thing remaining in sense is the, is the presidency. So if you get a hardliner it, uh, winning in the presidency, then you you may you may I mean because this is not for sure, but it, you may see a different kind of Iranian regime that you have previously seen, a more uh, um, kind of uh, a more uh, really hardline regime uh, with with the counter forces which there have been there over the time have where we decrease uh, their influence which also can can create a new set of problems and of course in terms of the long the internal population struggle for democracy that's also not good news and and we have seen over the past years uh, huge protests like November 2019, uh, widespread, countrywide um, protests that were repressed very harshly, and uh, things like this could increase as well. Mr. Erdogan is also in big trouble and is really weakened, uh, Pinar. Um, uh, you described that um, problems with the economy, of course, and COVID, and, um, and the, this uh, ACO party, that is uh, kind of fragmentation. Um, uh, we and then we have the Kurds. We have the Kurds problem with the PKK, and and also so the, the situation in in Syria. Uh, this has been um, troublesome. For, for many many years, why can't Turkey handle the Kurds? Could you t can you explain that for me? A million dollar question. <laughs> uh, why can't Turkey handle? Indeed, I mean the Kurds are the Achilles heel yeah. of the Turkish state in the sense that it is always um, 
I mean, the reason for entering into Syria, making these cross-border uh, interventions, which were so publicly criticized, was this fear of Kurdish autonomy and a Kurdish belt uh, against the border of, of Turkey. Um, in actual fact, in 2012, there was a process that was between the AKP government and, and the Kurds in Turkey. Mm. Uh, and there was a lot of hopes linked to that uh, process. And in fact, one of the, the, one of the um, key uh, Kurdish politicians at the time said, if anyone can resolve this, it's Erdogan, because he was in a position of power and had such strong support that if he was able to resolve it, then it would be resolved once and for all. However, that fell through. Uh, and then we had everything that happened with the, the Gulen movement and... Uh, the purges and the you know uh, the history followed, uh, but uh, if Cur if Turkey could resolve the Kurdish issue, it would in essence not find its hands tied in the same way that it is uh, uh, because it is the one existential threat that keeps coming back, and of course for the nationalists it's also very useful. Uh, to have the Kurdish issue as a um, uh, as a, a point around which to mobilize nationalist sentiment, so you know discussions right now are near impossible uh, because uh, the, the nationalists really do run Erdogan and not the other way around, actually. And uh, what's uh, just recently this week, they're discussing closing the uh, HDP party, which is the uh, Kurdish-run, quite liberal uh, uh, and legitimate party within Turkey. Uh, if they do so, it's also one of the biggest opposition parties to the AKP, of course, so there are reasons for why one would want to close that if one was Erdogan. Uh, but it doesn't make the situation any better. And how does one resolve this? I, I think you need to have, first of all, a change in the rhetoric around the Kurdish issue, desecuritizing it, speaking about it as a political issue. I think that's extremely critical. That's not happening now. Now we have this national, na nationalist fervor across Turkey, so it, it's impossible to talk about it in terms that would lead to a political solution. Uh, so you would need to have a change in the rhetoric and probably a change in the government as well to be able to talk about it. What's interesting and also worrying is that a lot of this rhetoric is also being adopted by opposition parties uh, that, you know, like the CHP, they're not particularly open to discussing the, the issues with the Kurds. So it's, you know, it's a, it's a real problem for Turkey, and it is the Achilles heel. Um, we have a big audience, uh, um, and they have sent us some questions, some of them. <laughs> um, so uh, I just to ask, ask a few of these questions, um, and, uh, and, and you could ask, uh, answer uh, all of you, or, or one of you, it's up to you. Um, one, one is like this. Did the Trump administration do anything good in the MENA region? It's a resounding silence. <laughs> <laughs> <Do you know? laughs> if, if I could comment, I would say possibly maybe not. Uh, it's um, uh, what has been what is being hailed. I mean, in in, in the U.S. is the so-called uh, what's it called Abraham Agreement, Abraham, the, yeah. the, um, the 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 opening up of relations between uh, the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain uh, with Israel, which is being sort of hailed as a reconciliation between Israel and and the Arabs. But I think this is it's it's 
it's very little worth in terms of reconciliation between Israel and the Arabs because mm. the conflict was never between Israel and 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 those uh, and and those states. They are peripheral to to Arab society, and and they are of course they are uh, they were um, they did this uh, or the Americans pushed this at the same time as they. Uh, more or less supported uh, Israel taking over the the West Bank and 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 destroying any option for a two-state solution, which which by the way might be uh, that anyway. But so I think, um, uh, and and in other ways, of course, also we remember that uh, uh, Trump talked about Sisi as his favorite uh, dictator, the the current ruler in in Egypt. So I think that the the, the Trump period was was a time when I mean, not, nothing much happened uh, in either direction, I would say, but, but to the extent that they had an influence, it was negative. If I can add to that, I think I'm slightly more positive to the Abraham Accords in the sense that I think it's a good thing that Israel and some Arab countries can have uh, relations, although I see all the, you know, the strategic uh, uh, thoughts that lie behind it. Um, what I think is more worrying and in a sense supporting Bjorn Olav's argument is that, you know, they were able to make the Abraham Accords at the, by hyping the Iranian threat. So kind of, we, um, we have to make this agreement because we have this common enemy, Iran. So that was what brought these countries together, enabled, you know, these uh, flourishing relations. Then, so then, in a sense, you're 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 creating, you know, some uh, agreements that moves the Israeli-Arab relations overall. I I would say, you know, somehow closer, which I think is a is a good thing. But at the price of, you know, even more polarizing the conflict uh, with Iran, you know, which is bound to create even more problems for the very same region. Uh, so it's a mixed picture. Thank you, um, Pina. Would you add something or no? What? I would just like to say that I mean, what Trump did do, which wasn't positive, of course, was to support these very authoritarian leaders and to assist in the military buildup in the region at a time when it absolutely did not need it. And I think that's part of what we're seeing now. Mm. A question f for you, Pinar. Um, how has the Arab Spring and the rise of IS impacted the Turkish-Kurdish relationship? The Turkish-Kurdish relationship? Um, well, you know, Turkey has been more concerned about um, the rise of the, the YPG and, and the PYD, in fact, in Syria, than ISIS. And uh, so in that extent, Turkey has f focused much more on trying to contain that threat than to contain the, tra the threat that ISIS uh, presented. And we saw this in 2014 when they intervened uh, because of the Kurdish threat rather than because of the, the threat from, from the so-called Islamic State. Uh, and also, you know, um, there have been terrorist threats in Turkey and terrorist events that have occurred, particularly around 2015 to 17. And these were um, 
terrorist attacks that occurred because of ISIS, but the, but the perception in the public is that the real threat comes from uh, the Kurdish insurgency. So I don't know if I'm answering the question, if I understand it correctly, yeah. but that's sort of that link between, uh, mm. between the two. There's one question here for, for, for Shetil. Uh, do you believe that there are benefits of designating the Revolutionary Guard as a terrorist organization? Uh, no, I don't. I think it's kind of symbol, uh, symbolic measure which is making things more complicated, really, because it's uh, it's it's a uh, it's a part of this Iranian state, it's an important important part of the Iranian uh, mm. uh, state, and by calling it. Um, terrorist organization you're just making any kind of um, engagement more more difficult i mean it's just the wrong way of fighting um the revolutionary guards it's just the wrong way of um supporting democracy in iran in my opinion because democracy in iran is never going to be imposed from the outside it only will emerge from the inside so the more you polarize around this issue, uh, turning the Revolutionary Guard into a martyr of, so, of some sort because they're being called a terrorist from the outside, the, the more difficult it becomes. Um, it was the same thing with Houthis. And one of the last things the Trump administration did was um, designating the Houthis a terrorist organization, which is also like a non-starter for anything like a resolution of the Yemeni conflict um, just you know you have to the Houthis are just they're a very important factor you have to engage with them you have to deal with them if you just call them a terrorist it just means you cannot touch them you cannot talk to them so it's not, not going to work and now Biden recognized that so one of the first things he did was you know saying we we removed this terrorist organization of the Houthis, hoping that that would be a goodwill measure to Iran that would kind of be met with some kind of um, re response, positive engagement from Iran, which has so far not materialized. But he has so far not uh, uh, turned away from this designation of the Revolutionary Guard as a terrorist organization. Uh, <clears throat> the time is running out. Uh, and we have just a uh, few seconds left. So, so um, thank you very much for your participation. Uh, it's been very stimulating, at least for me. <laughs> um, so, um, uh, I just have uh, um, one sentence from the Arab Barometer uh, survey uh, that um, trying to, to find out the support of democracy in, in this region. And that says that uh, just two years ago, that 78% of the Tunisians and 70% of the Egyptians and 70% of the, of the Libyans uh, said that democracy is the best option uh, for, for their countries. Uh, there is no figure for Saudi Arabia, uh, Iran and, and Turkey, but still, I think there is some hope there too. Thank you very much. Thank you.